you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you somewhere. Please grab it, take it. Uh, if you don't own one, we want that one to be yours if you're going to use it. Uh, that's not a mean. If you're, yeah. What I mean by that is my youth group used to always hand out Bibles and I would just take them and wrap them in duct tape. So if that's what you're going to do, don't do that. But if you're going to read it, do it. Um, so just a couple quick things before we dive into this. Um, next Sunday, uh, the next like three, four weeks are going to look, everyone's going to look totally different. Um, because next Sunday we will not be here. We will not be here. Do y'all catch me? We will not be here. Okay. Uh, we will be at the Dodds Lake House, which is over off Warhill and Dawsonville. Um, so we will do worship and teaching, and then we will play on the lake, get on the boats, uh, drink some colas and have fun. So um, make sure that you're there. If you don't have their address or anything like that, make sure you fill out a welcome card on the table and you can drop it in one of the coffee cans on the communion table so that we can shoot you the address and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we'll do our best not to post addresses on social media. I know we've done that before, but uh, things can get really creepy when that happens. So then after that, this is our last week in here. After that, we're going to move back into the gym um, because in the next few weeks, some of the college students will start rolling back in. <clears throat> so between now and the end of like August, we will probably triple um, is how statistically how it's gone. Uh, so we'll kind of start moving back that way, getting ready for the college students to come back and um, get missional communities, ramp back up and go. And so um, the next couple weeks will look different. So make sure, again, if you don't have, if you never got an email from us, that you fill out one of those cards so that you can stay up to date on everything that's happening. Sound good? Cool. Um, so this week, oh, sorry, next week, if you want to bring a side or a dessert, that would be great. We'll have barbecue and buns and drinks and all that stuff, uh, buns like for the barbecue. So um, make sure you bring a side or a dessert or something like that, or you can't eat barbecue. Um, are we good? Y'all feel a little dry. Are y'all tired? Are we good? Because like, I'm, I'm being really funny up here and getting nothing. So I mean, I made a cola reference. That's funny. Um, so Acts is where we're going to be. We're wrapping up like the last part of Encounter. So um, we've taken the last three weeks, we've put a pin in Luke, and we're taking just to talk about the idea of what does it look like to really encounter God. Uh, because I mean, I'm, I'm going to pick on a song for a second. I hope I don't like offend anyone that this was their like doxology. Uh, but when I was writing the sermon and thinking about it, um, the song I can only imagine, you all remember that song came to my mind? Um, that's just horrible theology. You don't have to imagine, like it's in the Bible. An encounter with God is actually in Scripture. So you don't have to wonder, am I going to fall on my knees, or will I run, or whatever that song's about. Scripture tells us you're going to fall on your face as though dead. So when we talk about encountering God, we've got all these different ideas and notions and thoughts. And so what we want to do is just go to Scripture and go, okay, what does an encounter with God actually look like? What does it really mean for us? How does it change the way we live? How does it change the way we interact? Uh, how does it change everything about us? Because uh, at some level, there's no real mystery. Scripture is very clear. Who, here is who God is. Man, here's what, who we are. And when we get in the presence of God, here's what happens. Uh, so we've been kind of using Isaiah 6. It's going to be on the screen. Isaiah 6 is kind of a backdrop for uh, what does this mean for us today? How do we live out an encounter with God? Because at the root of it, everyone asks this question. And I was even at Starbucks this weekend. Uh, it's lo and behold, like, uh, have you all met Margie in Starbucks? She's awesome. You should know Margie. Uh, but she's also really loud. And so um, she called me pastor and then like 
the whole, like everyone around there started asking theological questions because like, oh, that guy's a pastor. Uh, and so the question that one of the, someone brought up was like, I've been wrestling with my salvation. Am I really actually saved? I don't know what this means. Um, and so every question about this idea of faith and religion and God all really kind of roots down to this one notion, have we really encountered God? Have we actually had a true encounter with God? Because the hard part for me writing sermons is this. If we were to raise hands, like how many people grew up in church, there's a lot of people uh, within this room that have grown up in church and know the good things and know their Bible and know all this kind of stuff, uh, but have they ever actually had a true encounter with God or they've just seen what they've had modeled for them? So it's kind of one of those catch-22s for me. I don't ever want to preach or assume that people are saved or people know the gospel. So when I get up here, there's people that I've interacted with, that I've loved, that I've walked with, but I don't want to assume the gospel for you because then what's going to happen for me? One of the scariest verses for me is that teachers and preachers will be judged more harshly than Timothy. So like you guys don't have to sweat that. I do. That There's going to be a come a day when I get to heaven when you guys get to go party and I'm going to have to sit there and be an account for every scripture that I've taught. That I'm going to be judged more harshly. And so the worst way for me to, is to assume that you guys actually know the gospel. That even though you've been in church for 40, 50, 60, 10, 5, 2 years, that you actually have had a true encounter with God. Because this person I was talking to in Starbucks had. I mean, they'd grown up in church. They knew the gospel. They could explain it. And they're still wrestling with this idea, have I actually encountered God? Does it, has it actually changed me? Has it actually saved me? Am I good? How do I know? Um, so this morning, as we kind of wrap up this idea of encountered, um, that's the big question. Have I actually encountered God. Um, so Isaiah, let's just kind of recap real quick. Um, two weeks ago, we talked about this first part. And you had the serpent that were go flying around. Two of their wings were covering their face. Two were covering their feet. And the other two, they were flying. And what they were singing over heaven is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So we try to wrap our mind around this idea. Like what is holiness? Um, and so the best definition, simplest definition, is just God is so set apart that an encounter with God, we couldn't even wrap our minds around because he's so set apart. And A.W. Tozer says this. There we go. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. Okay, so holiness is not who we are, just the infinitely better version. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. We are blind to God's holiness. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. So with these seraphim are flying around God and singing, we can't fathom, we can't imagine. So the first step, when we are encountering God, we have to understand that we can't, that we cannot fathom who he is, what he's done, his power, his holiness. And so, um, have y'all ever read Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe? Yeah, okay. So I was, um, Bree and I went to Asheville this week just to kind of get away for a couple days. And I was thinking about this. Um, Aslan, who's the lion who represents God in the story, there's this conversation, the scene that goes on with Mr. Beaver. And I love this because, um, I'll, just, I'll just read the quote. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion, Ooh, said Susan, but here's where it gets good. I don't know why I included that. Ooh, said Susan. I could have just picked up after that. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? 
I shall fear rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. So I love this definition because God is not safe. There's nothing safe about him, but he's good. He's the king. I just love Mr. Beaver's response because that that is the God that we're encountering. Is he safe? No, he's not safe. Any interaction we see from God through the scriptures, whether it be Revelation, whether it be uh, Moses, whether it be uh, Isaiah, all of them fear for their life. Is he safe? No. But is he good? Yes, he is the king. So the next part that we talked about, um, Isaiah 6, 6 6-7, um, is comes after this. So when Isaiah sees the holiness of God, he cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King. So we always joke about and dream about, I can only imagine when I get to heaven, what am I going to do? What am I going to ask? You're not going to ask anything. When we get in the presence of the holiness that we can't fathom, We're going to act as though we're dead. We're going to be so fearful for our life in front of the holy God. But here's where it gets crazy. By the commands of God, one of the seraphim flew over to Isaiah with a burning coal and tongs and touched it to his lips and atoned Isaiah of his sin. So last week we looked at Luke 7 and looked at a funeral procession that was going on. So you had Jesus, that his crew were coming down, and then you had a funeral procession where this widow's only son was, had just died. Jesus walks onto the scene and raises this boy from the death. It's crazy. You should go read Luke 7. But the big idea is trying to understand this atonement that we're coming from. Most of us, if we're honest, we think Christianity is about making us from a bad person to a good person. So I've got to do more good things. That's what atonement looks like. God has saved me. I can't squander that. I can't waste this. I've got to be a good person. But from what we see in Isaiah, atonement, based on what we see biblically in Luke 7, has nothing to do with being bad versus good. It has to do solely with being dead versus alive. So there's, that is not the gospel. God did not save us. He did not send his son to die for us so that we could be good people. Right? God sent the gospel, he sent Jesus to us because Romans would say we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And because of the cross, now we've been made alive together in him. If you could find me a text that would say I'm supposed to be a good person, I'll believe you. But every language that the Bible ever uses about us is very much death versus alive language. So we spent a while last week talking about that. And now we end here. Here's the last part of the Isaiah story that we're going to get to. Uh, because it's, if you've ever grown up in church, if you've ever bought a Christian shirt, I promise you this verse is on it. Um, and I heard, so this is after the sin had been atoned for, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Right? So what we're going to have to see this morning is we've got to make sure that we in our hearts keep the Isaiah story true to its form, lest we tempt ourselves into sin. And I'll unpack that for a little bit. Um, But Acts 8.26 is where we're going to land. We're going to try to wrestle with, what does this really look like? Here I am, send me. What what does this actually look like fleshed out? And I think Philip in Acts 8 will tell us the best. Acts 8. In verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, 
rise and go towards the south, the road that comes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and he rose and went. So I'm just going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit, uh, because we have to understand what's happening here. The Lord spoke to Philip and said, go to this random place. You don't know where I'm going. You just start walking that way. Did Philip hesitate? Did he think about it? Did he ponder it? Did he consider what was on his iCal for the day? No, he just left. He just went. So this is an obedience that, that most of us have probably never experienced at this level. We heard God speak, even though we've got scripture. I mean, the best way that God speaks to us is in his word, right? So we've never experienced this. We read something, we hear God say something, we just stop what we're doing at once and go do it. And as he went, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Cadence, or Candace, a queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Funny because that's what we're reading. Now, all of this is fancy language and we can get into what this really means. But here's the easiest way to say it. They had nothing in common. Philip and this person in the, um, excuse me, what's that word? Chariot, there we go. Um, what, I can't forget a word? Judging me. So they had just nothing in common. So not only did God say, hey, Philip, go this way. You don't know where I'm sending you, but I'm sending you to a person that you have nothing in common with. There's no similarities. There's no common interests. There's no nothing. Get up and go. Just, just go do it. Verse 29, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip sees the chariot, knows that, hey, I have nothing in common with this person. This is going to get awkward. Maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I heard it wrong. Maybe that was just gas. So I'm going to maybe go around a different way. But God spoke to Philip again, and look at verse 30. If you underline, underline those first five words. So Philip ran to him. Any hesitancy in that verse? Any thought in that verse? Any doubt, any concern, any fear, any worry? No. Philip ran to him. It's one of those, uh, there's all these cliches that I heard growing up that I hate and now I'm using as a parent. Um, slow obedience is no obedience. Y'all ever heard that? So if I ask my kids to do something and they're slow about it, to me that's just disobedient. Right? So as we're looking at Scripture, if God asks us to do something, uh, here's the most, I, I love this. I'm going to bust on church people for a while. Here's the response that church people like to give. Oh, let me pray on that. Let me just pray on that, Pastor. Uh, can you do it right now? Well, yeah. Do you have the means? Yes. Do you have the time? Yes. What are you praying about? Right? Like, that's church people do it all. I'm guessing you aren't laughing because you've all done that before. Right? We do it all the time. We have the means. We have the ability. We have the time. But yet we say, oh, let me just pray about it. Let me, let me consider that. I mean, every morning I open up the scriptures in my quiet time. And, and I'm just going to commit to praying that for the next four to six months. I, I will pray about me putting a sign in my yard for you, right? No, like if you have the ability to do it, not that we're asking people to put signs in the yard. That was just the first thing that came in my mind, right? If we have the ability to do it, Philip had the ability. He had the time. He was available. So he ran. There's nothing to consider, Verse 30, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? Now, we could, I could go off on a huge tangent here, and maybe one day we will. 
most people are afraid of these conversations, right? I mean, if we could just be honest, we're reading the story of Philip and going, there's no way I could do that. There's no way I could walk into that environment. Um, but I love what Philip did, the example that he set for us. Did he start preaching right away? No, he asked just a simple question. So if you want to live missionally, if you want to live on mission, if you want to be a light into your community, the easiest way to start that is just to ask questions. Just to inquire about where people are, what they're doing, what they're considering, what they're pondering. Don't walk in there guns a-blazing ready to preach. You're going to get punched if you do that. Just go to any campus when you have street preachers show up and you'll see what happens. Ask just questions, just care, just love on, encourage. Do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, Ricky preached about this a couple weeks ago in Luke 9. <clears throat> Sorry. There's a bug. <laughs> that was a little weird. Uh, getting caught up in the Holy Spirit, baby. No. Um, Ricky preached about this a couple weeks ago, this idea of people of peace. So when Jesus sent out his disciples, um, he said, go into these towns, and if you find a person of peace, if you find someone that your peace rests with, stay with them. If you don't, shake the dust off your feet and go on to the next town. And so I mentioned earlier, Bree and I went up to Asheville and stayed at a bed and breakfast. Has anyone ever done that? I was really uncomfortable with the whole idea of bed and breakfast. It was just creepy to me. I don't know, like, I literally brought 200 rounds of ammunition with me. Like, just didn't know what the B&B was about, but it just creeped me out. Uh, I was sleeping in a 100-year-old house with people that I didn't know. And it, I don't know, just, it was a weird idea. When we got there, I walked in, beautiful mountain town, and uh, the lady, her name's Debbie, started walking down the yard to meet us. And this is the, the, one of the closest things I've experienced to this idea of people of peace. Because instantly, my fears and anxieties went away. There was something there. And so, I mean, just like Luke 9, if your peace rests with them, stay there. Well, we had already paid a bunch of money to stay there, so we still stayed there. But th it was just crazy. As time went on, and we found out that they were believers, that they loved the Lord, that they wanted to serve the church, they wanted to serve us. And so, yes, they're doing this to make money. But I felt like, and, and Brie and I talked about it almost the whole way home, uh, that they were really serving us just as, the, as Christ would serve the church. And so this idea of people of peace, like we experienced it that, this past week. So what Philip is doing, that there is some kind of spirit going on in that chariot that he got invited into to help uh, this guy uh, study over Isaiah. Um, pick it up in verse 32. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opens not his mouth, verse 33, in his humiliation, this is Jesus he's talking about, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with scripture, he told the good news about Jesus. So let's just recap real fast. Philip hears the voice of the Lord and says, go to this desert place. Gets up and he goes. He sees the chariot going through. The Spirit says, go talk to him. He ran. He hears this eunuch reading scripture. Philip goes, hey, I'm not trying to interrupt. Do you understand which, what that you're reading? He says, no, how can I? Because we would know Romans, right, that, that unless we preach, unless we go, no one's going to understand Scripture. 
hey, I don't understand this. Will you come up with me? So Philip gets in the chariot. They're riding along, and he's explained to him the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because he was obedient. Going back to Isaiah, who am I? Here am I. Send me. I'm ready to go. There's a quote that I just I hope we can all erase from our memory. I think maybe at one time it was a decent idea. This whole idea of preach the gospel at all time when necessary use words. Have you guys heard this? The gospel is words. Like we have to explain the gospel. Yes, we should love unconditionally. We should love like Christ. We should pursue people like Christ. But we shouldn't live under the assumption that people are always just going to come ask us. I saw you mow your grass and like you, the way you live your life, something's just different. Can you tell me what's different about you? Because the way you mow your grass. I saw that day that you were edging your yard and you tripped and fell backwards in the driveway. And that's a true story, by the way. And you didn't cuss. Can you tell me about your Savior? Right? Like, we just have all these crazy notions that if we just live this perfect life, that everyone's going to come to know Jesus. Everyone's going to pursue us. Yes, do we preach the gospel at all times with our actions? Yes, to the best of our abilities. But this whole, when necessary, use gospel is words, and it's always necessary for us to explain the hope that's within us. So Philip, through questions, was able to get to the point of explaining the gospel to him. And here's the result, verse 34. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me from identifying as a Christ follower? Verse 38, And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on rejoicing. So here, here's some big takeaways from the story of what it looks like to be sent. Philip must have had a true encounter with God. At some point in Philip's life, he had to have had a true encounter with God so that he was that bold in his obedience. Right? So that's the first one. And the second one is what if we are the only encounter that someone has with Jesus? So as we leave here, we carry that what Philip carried. What would have happened if Philip said, nah, I know, eunuch, yeah, I know, but uh, I'm, I'm going to walk this way. I'm not going to follow over. I'm not going to go this direction. I know, God, I heard what you said. I'm not going to be obedient. What would have happened to that eunuch? And what would have happened to all that this eunuch oversees within the government? What would have happened with the influence that he had if Philip would not have been obedient to God and followed him there and led this man to Jesus? What would have happened so it's a sobering thought for us to remember that as we leave here, uh, today we might interact with someone and we might be the only encounter that they have with Jesus. And what are we going to do with that? But here's where things kind of start getting sideways a little bit. As I'm preaching, and I know you guys, one of the reasons that majority of us are here, because there's this thought that always goes in our mind as Christians, I need to blank, right? I know I need to go to church. I know, I know I need to read the Bible more. I know that I need to serve more. I know that I need to tithe more. I know that I need to tell people about Jesus. I know that I, I need to, I need to. I need. Have you all ever felt this pressure? Even when I'm talking about Philip and the eunuch and all that takes place, there's something that's going in our gut going, man, I know I need to do that, Pastor. I know I need to. I know that's in me. Here, here's the problem with that phrase. I don't see Philip going, I need to do this. I don't see any disciple being a disciple of Jesus because they need to do something. 
because they need to validate themselves. That phrase, I need to, is nowhere in the text. What we see from Philip, it just kind of baffles us. What we see from the apostles through Acts, it just baffles my mind, is there's no obligatory, is that a word? They're not obligated, how about that? They're not obligated to do anything. There's no, I need to, I feel bad about myself, I need to go do this. What happened was just life. It was natural for them, it was just coming out of their beings. For Philip to run to this eunuch, it's totally different than the way we understand it. Because in that moment, if it was me, I'm just speaking for me, maybe we can relate, maybe you're better than I am, that's fine. There would be an inner dialogue in my mind going, God, I know you asked me to do this, but, but, right? Like, and if I actually did do what Philip did, then in my mind I'm going, gosh, I, I just need to do this so that God will leave me alone. I need to do this. So here's where I want to maybe kind of wrestle with. If we've truly encountered Jesus, if we've truly had an encounter with God, this phrase I need to would never be in our definition. Here's what I'm, pull back up Isaiah for me, Kyle. Here's what I mean. We're going to try to see this through this text of Isaiah. Um, Because Isaiah 6 starts off with him, Isaiah, encountering God, seeing God for what he is. Uh, We'll just call this the no stage. So Isaiah had no real reference for who God was before this moment. He thought he did. But in Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, he had this experience. He had this vision. Go to the next one for me. And because of the knowledge that he had, the holiness of God that he had, he actually knew him. For the first time, Isaiah knew who God was. He saw him, and because of that, he fell to his face. So we have this knowledge. Isaiah had this knowledge firsthand. Here's who God is. But we always have to move away from knowledge. Knowledge just doesn't do a whole lot. I know how to eat well. I'm not doing it right? I know how to do different things, but just because I know doesn't mean it changes the way that I live. It doesn't change until you actually believe it, until it feels. There's something that wells up inside of you until you have this belief that wants to change, that you actually feel something. And so for Isaiah, this knowledge goes into feeling to belief when the serpent picks up the tongs and comes and atones for a sin. So he knows how good God is. He actually feels it because of the forgiveness that he has gotten for his sins. So the next natural step is God says, who's going to go for me? There's no obligation for Isaiah to stand up and say, me, I'm going. It was just an immediate natural result for him to say, I know who God is and I believe in him. I feel him. Therefore, the natural explanation is for me to obey him by going. There was no consideration on his part. There was no thought going into this. He didn't even know what that meant. If you read through the rest of Isaiah, then God says, okay, if you're going to go for me, here's what you say. So he agreed to follow God, not even knowing anything of what he was going to do. And we know, I mean, think about a house fire for a second. I know this is morbid. Auburn's not in here, so I can talk about house fires. She's terrified of them, by the way, um, to make sure that made sense. If we know, if we have the knowledge that a house fire is taking place, if we start to smell smoke, right? We start to smell, so I know that something has gone awry. Something is not right. Then we sit to see smoke, and we start to understand, like we really feel, oh man, my house is on fire. 
I smelt it, so I know it is, but then I feel it. I feel the heat coming out of this fire. Are you going to have to sit there and consider and ponder if you're going to get up and run out of your house? No. Obedience is naturally going to take place. If you know something and you will believe it, believe all the way to the point of you feel something, then obedience is the last thing that we need to worry about. So here's my fear going into preaching Isaiah 6, 8. What you're going to hear is a legalistic bunch of rules and regulations of what you need to do if you're going to follow Christ. And all of us wrestle with this, but here's, here's how I want to land this plane with encounter. Don't even worry about being obedient. Worry about encountering God, knowing and believing, because if you know and believe, obedience is going to take place no matter what happens. We cannot put the cart before the horse. We cannot say, I need to obey, I need to obey, because then who does that make God? It would break my heart if I walked into my kid's bathroom and it was clean. No, just kidding. If I walked into my kid's bathroom and they had a note on their window that said, I need to kiss my dad three times a day. I need to keep my dad happy. I need to kiss him and hug him three times a day. If that's what my kids, when they woke up, that's the first thing that they saw. So then they turned around and they marched right into my bedroom. Good morning, dad. Here's your first kiss. Kiss. Go to school. Come home, they wash their face after school, say, oh, I need to go kiss my dad. Good afternoon, dad. I hope your day was good. Give me a kiss, leave. And then they're brushing their teeth before they go to bed. They see, oh, third time. Good, good night, dad. I love you. Kiss, go to bed. I would break my heart because it's regimented. It's forced. If I don't do this, then my dad's not going to be happy. But then we carry that just into our relationship with God. If we don't obey him, he's not going to love us. So we're focusing on the obedience and we're missing the knowing and believing part. So scripturally, if we just follow Isaiah's track, Isaiah saw God, they knew God. God atoned for his sins, he believed in him. And the natural repercussion was him to stand up and go, I'm in, whatever, Wh whatever it is, I'm in. So here, here's my question for us. Where are we having a hard time being obedient with God? Now, here's where the legalistic part, and here's where, I mean, just being honest, I've probably preached this way before. Write down where you're being disobedient and try harder this week to be obedient. Write down, maybe it's reading the Bible. You just need to try harder this week. No, don't, don't try harder. Let's just study scripture. Don't try harder this week. I want you to meditate on do you actually know who God is? Have you actually encountered God? And if you do, what are you not believing about his character that's leading you to disobedience? We can't look forward, we have to look back. Because if we just keep walking forward, what's going to happen is we're just going to be a really, really good person that does somewhat spiritual things, and we're going to get to heaven like the Bible describes, and he's going to say, I don't know you. You've been doing all of this on earth in your own power I don't understand. I don't know who you are. Depart from me. I've never known you. But Lord, didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I do all of this in your name? Maybe, but you're doing it on your own power. So we have to stop looking forward and trying to be obedient. We have to start looking back and going, do I really know God? Have I actually encountered him? If I do, do I really believe him? Do I really trust him? Do I feel something in my bones about him? If that's the case, then obedience is just going to be natural for us. But if we work so hard to try to be obedient first and neglect the knowing and believing, 
we're going to get burned out. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with ex-Christians that this is their story. That this is their testimony. I used to be a Christian. I used to follow God. I did everything right. And this and this and this happened. If this is how God treats me, I don't want to be a believer anymore. If this is the God of love, I'm out. And here's what's happened. They've skipped over the no. They've skipped over the believing. They've just walked in this obedient part. And they think that, because if I do this and this and this right, God is going to love me. He's going to take care of me. And then a death happens, a divorce happens, something goes wrong in their life, and they immediately go, what's up, man? You, you told me you would take care. No, no you, don't actually know, you never actually encountered God. You're just being obedient to a God you want to believe in, but you don't actually know him. So for me to stand up here and go, you just need to be obedient. You just need to try harder. Is actually preaching death over you guys. What I want to do is I want you to have an encounter with God to where obedience is the natural byproduct. There was no hesitation in Isaiah. There was no hesitation in Philip. And they weren't trying to please God. They weren't trying to. They had encountered God for real, and it changed everything about their life. So have you had that encounter with him? Or is there something in your life, a key area in your life, where you just feel like I've tried to be obedient and I can't, that I cannot trust God in this area. Don't try harder, go backwards. What truth about him, what knowledge are you failing to believe that would lead you to that action? Because here's, here's the, the biggest misconception, <clears throat> that I'm gonna work my way to God. We are going to celebrate communion in just a few minutes, and the main thing that we celebrate in communion is not that we got our way to God, this God got his way to us through Christ. That it's not us being obedient, it's not us climbing up this ring of a ladder to eternity, it's that God came to us first so that we would know, so that we would believe, and the natural byproduct would be obedience. So that it would come off our tongues easy. Here am I, God, send me wherever you, whatever you want for my life, you can have it, because I know that you're good, and I believe that you love me, therefore, whatever you want to do for me, let's do it. So when we stop to celebrate communion, let's remember that. that it's not us working our way to God, it's God working our way to us through Christ. And because of that, he came here, his body was broken, his blood was spilt for us, so that we've been made new creations. And if you know that, and if you believe that, then obedience is just going to be natural. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take some time just to remember and reflect through communion, and then we'll continue to worship. But, but my question is this morning, as we land this encounter plane, have we actually encountered God to the point where our life changes? Not because we're forcing it, not because we think we have to, but because obedience is a natural byproduct to his love for us. So let me pray. Father, Thank you. And God, thanks that, that the way that you speak to us, the way that you love us, the way that you encourage us is so different from anything else we've ever experienced. God, that there's no ulterior motives in the way that you love us. Father, we don't have to earn our love. We don't have to try harder to please you. We don't have to do any of that. You know, that you sent your son to die for us so that we would know you, so that we would believe you, 
God, and that obedience would just be natural. God, as we read and see these heroes of our faith in Scripture, God, we see them walking into crazy situations and doing crazy things. And we wonder and we marvel at their faith. and Say, if I just had faith like that, then I could do incredible things too. If I just tried harder, then maybe I could be like that. And then maybe through me that, that many souls would be saved and I would see a revival happen through my life. But I need to do this and this and this and this and this. God, would you take those thoughts away from us? God, would we be so in love with you? Father, would we know everything about you? God, from that knowledge, we begin to feel how good you are, how much you love us and how much you care for us and how much you provided for us. God, if we just work on understanding who you are, and Father, if we just ask for your spirit to be revealed in our hearts, Father, obedience is going to naturally take place. When we understand how good you are and how much you love us, then we can't shut up talking about how good you are. Then we can't stop reflecting you everywhere we go because we've had an encounter with you. We actually know you. We believe in you. We take you at your word because we know you've never failed us. We know you will never disappoint us, that you are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the beginning and the end. You are in control always. know that and to feel that if you're actually in control then whatever you ask me to do I'm going to do wherever you lead our family we're going to go whatever crazy dream you put in our path we're going to follow because you never fail so church have we encountered Jesus we encountered some false version of him have we encountered the the religion that we just need to do enough good deeds and be obedient enough it's going to earn our way into heaven does obedience for us feel like a weight that we must carry Obedience is scary for sure. I will never take that away. But is there joy found in that or is there obligation found in that? So you as an individual, have you encountered God? Have you truly seen Him, understood Him, not just on paper, but has that knowledge moved to belief, moved to a feeling that you can't shake, that there's something welling up in your chest, that you have to follow this man, this God, everything that we have. You had that encounter. something going on in our life right now church that we we need that and we know he's good
we know his love is strong. He never fails us. He never will leave us. He'll never forsake us. But whatever circumstances in our life right now, we just have a hard time believing that. We, we know it. We know God is good. But if we're honest, we just don't feel it. We just don't believe it. The answer is not try to be obedient so that we feel it. Would we sit? Would we ask the Spirit? Would we press into our souls? Would we pray and petition that God would change our mind, that He would lead us to repentance, would literally change the way we think about this situation and see it from God's perspective, not ours. So as we stop and take communion this morning, where are you in your encounter with God? Are you tired? tired of being obedient for the sake of being obedient. Do you know him, but you just don't feel him? Or are you, right now, the Spirit speaking to you, and you're realizing, I don't know him. I know a lot about him. I've never actually had an encounter with him. proof of encountering God is unashamed obedience. So let us pray, let us consider, let us ponder. When your heart is ready, communion will be open. Especially as believers, this is a time for us to recalibrate our hearts back to the beauty of the gospel. If you're not yet a believer, I ask that you consider and you pray. Uh, but this is a really special time for us as believers. So we just ask that uh, you just observe, but maybe not participate this morning. As always, there are people around every table that love you if you need to talk. Our team will be here to talk, but let us just consider and pray and ponder, have we actually encountered God?